This episode contains adult themes and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Crystal, just sitting here, sitting here as always, wondering about what your life looks like right now. I mean, how things have changed so much since I first released this pod back in February. (laughs) Like, how much has changed in the world, let alone individually, right? Like, I don't even know anymore. I don't know this election, the RBG death. Brianna Taylor's injustice. It's just, I'm sitting here in raw fear often. Fear about the revolutionary fight that we're all in and what we're up against and what's on the other side. What do you think the other side looks like? I don't know. And I'm I'm unsure and it's scary. I, you know, I'm married to a woman and as a person that is married to a woman, and as a person that has trans, non-binary friends, black friends, friends in poverty, friends that are marginalized by our society, I am freaking scared. If you have any thoughts on this or answers, I'm open. Message me, please. <laughs> like, it's just, it's not even funny. It's like a fetal position, shaking, crying, laughing, crying, laughing kind of times. Because the unknown right? The unknown. I don't know, man. I hope you're okay. Any words of advice to me? Let me know. I will in turn spew it out to the rest of the world. I am uh, baffled and uh, absolutely uh, sometimes paralyzed. And then I get really motivated. This is the cycle of what I am right now. And then I'm helping and doing all these wonderful things and then I'm back at it like just you know the cloud of uh doom hits me and then I'm motivated then I'm helping and I'm calling and I'm helping and I'm going and then the cloud of doom but I will I will tell you this um the times when I feel motivated it's usually connecting to people so I hope that's what you're trying to do is connect and as much as you possibly can and whatever that looks like for you connect with people I always feel better after I'm connecting. So whatever it is that makes you feel safe and better, do that, right? Do those things. You know what that is for you. It's different for everyone. I will also mention that I am recording this the week, Friday before there's a huge rally happening in Portland this weekend with the Proud Boys Patriot Prayer Group a lot of Trump supporters, Um, and Portland has just been a constant flood of reminders of police brutality, and I'm grateful that I live in a city where people show up. I'm so grateful, but I don't know what the outcome is going to be, and my where I live, I'm safe, but I'm just, a lot of that has me on edge, too, and I feel like I wouldn't be honest if I didn't address that in some way shape or form. But enough, enough about me, enough about the gloom and the doom and the unknown. 
That's not why we're here. We're here for our next guest, Julia, who is amazing. Um, I will tell you that after re-listening to our interview, I did feel less scared again. I got that motivation that I needed. Uh, we go off on the in the end of the interview talking about how empowering it is uh, to just set emotional boundaries with people that are toxic and how much hope that brings to our society and our lives. And that felt good. This story is so unique. Okay, so Julia, I picked a quote from Angela Davis for Julia. Angela Davis said, anyone who is interested in making change in the world also has to learn to take care of herself, himself, and their selves. And that is exactly what this amazing story that you're about to hear is about. You will hear Julia talk about what it's like to be born into a cult. Did you hear what I just said? Born into a cult, people. And what that does to a child's perception of the world. She goes down rabbit holes of severe complex trauma. Just one thing after another after another happened to this poor woman. And it was actually a little bit flabbergasting um, to, 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 to go through with her. It was like, holy shit, you know, that, that feeling of like, oh my God. And the fact that she not only has made it out, but she is now a healer herself just blows me away. It brings me so much joy and hope, and she is just a big example for us all. And just like that quote, you know, you cannot make a change in the world without learning how to change yourself, and Julia did just that. That whole uh, idea of when you get on a plane and they say you have to put your mask on first before you help someone else, it's, Julia did that, and I, I don't know how she did that, because you're going to hear there's assaults, there's uh, eating disorders, there's drug addiction alcohol, the whole thing. And it's empowering to listen to her recovery story. And for anyone that has suffered through any kind of trauma, to know that someone like Julia got out and is now leaning into others to say, you can do it too. It's pretty fucking amazing, <laughs> to be frank. Uh, it, it's so incredible and one of a kind. So I'm really, really excited for you to hear it. Julia is a fighter, and she is brave, and she is vulnerable, and she is kind, and she brings me hope. So here we are, Julia. And as always, listen to this podcast with an open mind, an open heart, no judgment. And thanks for listening. I love you. I was born in Oakland, California in 1985. Did you know my last guest was from Oakland? The person I just had on? No way. Yes. Wow. That's where my, my partner is from as well, or that area, the East Bay. Um, I didn't grow up there. We, my brothers and I, well, my older brother and I were born there um, because there was an ashram there that my uh family was involved in. Can you tell me what that is? So I, I grew up in a cult. So basically I say that it's a cult because it meets certain criteria such as, um, you know, surveillance of people without their consent, uh, you know, suppression of information. Um, there are certain abuses of power that went on and actually, so that it was this guru from India and I'll even actually, I'll give his name. Um, I don't normally like go into detail, but since this is like what we're talking about, it's related, <laughs> you know? So he, uh, 
his name was uh, Swami Muktananda, Bhagawan Muktananda. So he married my parents in India in a group ceremony. So they were heavily involved in this organization, the spiritual organization, and, and their foundation was called the SYDA Foundation, Siddha Foundation. Um, and so he came in and he came over to the West and built an ashram in Oakland um, in not the best neighborhood either. But that's why I was born there, because my, my parents chose to move and settle close to there. Um, we didn't live inside of the ashram. Uh, there were other kids that I knew that did. Uh, I, I should mention at this point, actually. Um, so Muktananda was um, accused by dozens of women years later of uh, sexually abusing them in his ashram. So that was the kind of environment, you know, that I was born into. And, you know, you're, you're there and you're in these like meditation halls and these uh, chanting circles and um, playing with the other kids in there, you know, whatever. And it's feeling off, you know, or dark or weird. And you just kind of you're told that that's the house of God, you know, you're told that this person is like a literal embodiment of God. And so then you just figure that like, it's probably just a problem with you because you can't make sense of the fact that like, it doesn't add up. Right. And this has just right. like been a theme throughout my life. So, um, so we moved to Palo Alto when I was about four and Palo Alto is like, I don't know if you know that area, but um, it's a, Silicon Valley. It's like the heart of Silicon Valley. It's really like pretty upper middle class. Like, so I had both parents um, together and kind of outside looked like the American dream, like a, a lot of privilege in a certain respect as a, a you know, a white family and um, relatively well off and good schools and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So did your, how long were your parents involved with this? Oh, they still are. Oh, they still are. So yeah. when did they start? Like how old were they when they started? 1975 is when my father met Baba and 1978 is when my mother met Baba. So they would have been, God, um, like my dad was maybe 28 and my mom was maybe 24. Um, so it's, you know, I, I think it's young people looking for belonging yeah. and did they have what I guess what I want to ask is what what were they taught as children like your parents how right. what, what were they raised with yeah so my father is Jewish and so has a Jewish lineage my mother uh, her family is German Lutheran so pretty different backgrounds, um, culturally and religiously, <laughs> but they both also came from a lot of trauma, you know, I know now, and, um, it yeah. showed up differently for each of them, but, you know, uh, both just really wounded and looking for something, you know, and it's like, just, you're young and you, um, I also see too, that like a cult will usually have like a really powerful figure that feels really, um, dynamic and puts out certain qualities, maybe really makes people feel loved or special or can, you know, in this case, like he could actually um, facilitate certain experiences on an, like an energetic level. 
um, that really made people feel good. You know, part of that was actually dark magic. Like this is like a whole big thing, but um, part of that was actually like, you know, kind of like tantric um, Ah. stuff that isn't so cool. Uh, you know, I don't know how, how deep I want to get into that, but it's, it's kind of like using sexual energy, um, for, uh, different purposes. And, and in this case, it's really to manipulate uh, a lot of people, you know, and, and to gain a lot of money and power and kind of be in this position. But so, you know, what I understand now about attachment wounding, because I studied, um, my, my master's degree is in human development and I studied like child development and, you know, attachment theory kind of at length. Um, is that like when we don't have those secure attachments to our parents in childhood and we don't have those experiences of like a mom or a dad that's just there and loves us really unconditionally and we feel like we belong and we're safe, you know, we're going to seek that out, you know, and we'll seek that out in some, sometimes in a relationship with someone, sometimes, you know, um, substances or whatever, but, um, but if, but in, in the case of people who are really drawn to cults and leaders like that, I really see that they project like mom and dad onto, I mean, he was a father figure for both of them. And he actually wasn't alive when I was, when I was born, he died in India in 1982. My parents were both there. Um, and he named a successor. I later learned that they, they suppressed this information and wouldn't and kept it from me when I was a child. But I later learned that they actually appointed two successors, uh, a woman and a man, and the, they were brother and sister. And the man later, um, there was some scandal with him and they basically took him out and just erased him from the entire history of the cult. So you just didn't hear about him or talk about, I'm like, she had a brother. Like I, I learned this when I'm like 14, you know? Um, but it was, it was a woman actually. So her name is Guru Maich at Velasananda. This is the guru that I grew up with. So this was more like mom. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm told that this is the embodiment of God and that she loves me unconditionally, etc. You know, <laughs> and it's like, um, for anyone who's interested too, if they want to know more about like this specific organization, the New Yorker did an article on it, I think back in the nineties, um, when m- more stuff started coming out, uh, and the article is called, Oh, Guru Guru. And so if you just Google it, you can find it online. Um, it's a great article and it goes really in depth into like in that specific organization, sort of what it was and like. what that looked like. Oh my gosh. So how old were you when you guys moved again? I was about four. You were four. Yeah. Did you have siblings? Yes. So my, uh, my little brother actually was born in, in Palo Alto and my older brother was born in Oakland, but there are three of us. I'm the, I'm the middle a girl between two boys. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a middle child, but between two, ah. boys, middle child. Yeah. We get a lot. We get a lot yeah. <laughs> peacemakers, peacemakers of the world. <laughs> oh God, seriously. Tell me about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's crazy. So you were four and then what did your life look like? Mm-hmm. That you were kind of, I'm assuming you were dis- more distant from. Yeah, more distant. So we would go on the weekends. Um, I kind of just played along with it and went um, because I felt like I was supposed to be feeling something really good about it. Um, so it was always kind of this sense of guilt that I didn't like going there. 
Um, but my little brother, on the other hand, would throw a fit. I mean, he would like dig his heel. So it got to a point where like, you know, they would get a babysitter and leave him home because he was like so adamant about not going there. So the body is really smart. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't have those filters, you know, and depending on a child's personality, like he was just, it was a strong, it was a hard no, you know, for him, which I think is, you know, really cool about just the person that he was and is. Um, but yeah, so we would go back and forth to the ashram on the weekends and my parents would sometimes have gatherings at the house. They had sort of this extended community of ashram people. Um, so it was, it was more of a distant influence in my life in, in that way. Um, my father, to the best of what I can gather from all of my memories now, my father started sexually abusing me when I was two. Oh my God. So, yeah, so that occurred, again, as far as I can gather, from the ages of two to eight. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know why that, like, I don't, I, uh, I'm sorry. Ugh, God. It's a really horrific thing, you know? It's a really horrific thing. And I, I wish that I was the only woman in the world with that story and I'm sure not you no. know but it's it 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 really so like with that happening and then you know there's this influence that feels dark in my life and he's attached to that you know and my mother's attached to that and it's like that's look at who he follows for spiritual guidance it was just like confusing gaslighting like um just crazy making and my mother was um again she came from a lot of trauma so she was kind of just not real stable emotionally um and i think there was a bit large part of her that never really wanted to be in the role that she found herself in like as a mother and as a wife like and she was young you know at least by my standards to today, you know, it's like, she's in her mid twenties. Like that's friggin' young to be married and having kids, um, with all that unresolved trauma, you know? So, um, so there was a lot of just yelling and anger, um, that I received from her and that relationship was just not good. You know, it was just not good uh, growing up. It was hard to connect with her or feel nurtured by her. And then I think there was also this sense of like, you're supposed to be loving me or protecting me. And I don't understand why you're not. Right. You know? There was no sense of safety. There literally was no safety for me in the world. And, 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 you know, in terms of the story of abuse, like if, if I were to fast forward, it's like also in fifth grade, I had a male teacher who abused me. Oh my God, Julia. No, it just gets like compounded. And then there's like, there's just nowhere that's safe. There's no person that feels safe. There's no place that feels safe. Like, yeah. yeah. Ugh. That is terrible. That is terrible. And you said your dad stopped around eight? Yeah. Yeah, he had a brain tumor at that time. And I'm not sure if that might have something to do with why. Um, I don't really know. But uh, he did have a brain tumor at that time. 
And I think after that, he just was never the same. And uh, it also could be just because I was just getting to a certain age. I don't know. Oh, my God. So with the teacher, you were probably 10? Yeah, I was 10. Yeah. And he was really psychologically abusive. Like he would do things like accuse me of doing things that I didn't do, you know, and just be real convinced and angry that I did something (laughs) that I didn't do and kind of punish me for it, you know? And there, so there was this, oh my gosh, there was just this identification with badness because you don't know what all their like sense to make of that um, when that's happening to you. And then like there, and then, you know, whatever part of me left that felt like I had some purity or goodness to me, like at that time when I was 10, like having that experience and having him just be like, no, you're not that you're not good. Your intentions aren't good. You're a very bad girl. Like you're, you know, um, just, just wild stuff for me because I was always, I think, real inclusive of people. And there were these stories that he, he was like, well, so-and-so's, you know, I, I've heard from parents of students that you've been bullying the kids or something like that. And just, I just never, you know, it was like, what? And he wouldn't tell me who. And, um, you know, I was vice, I was vice president of my school in fifth grade and I worked hard to get those votes and I was really proud of it. And he, um, convinced me that I shouldn't be vice president, that I didn't deserve that title and to, to walk down to the principal's office one day and resign. And so I walked by myself crying the whole way to the principal's office. And I said, I can't be vice principal anymore. Like, so it broke, that broke me. Like, I mean, yeah. like, that sounds like, I, I don't even know how to want to generalize any kind of psychopathic. Like, it just sounds like a sheer. No, it is, it is, it is a, a really okay. thick, there is a really deep sickness there with that person. So he is someone that I actually did wind up reporting to CPS with the help of my therapist years later. That is huge. Yeah, that was like a big deal. Because these are people, like, and this is what I want people to get about abuse is that it's like, my dad was like a real respected dude, you know, um, had a great career and was real nice to people on, you know, like, this is not just random, you know, drug addicts in alleyways that are, you know, delusion. Like, it's, it's not the rarity. These are people that, are in our churches and our religious institutions and in our homes and our schools, you know, so this is really something that affects every element of our society and can really be um, so pervasive. And it's just, it's real unfortunate. And I think that when we get older too, we, we just, we, we spoke into this, you and I just um, momentarily before we, you know, started our recording today, but um you know, like men like that teacher of mine know what to look for in terms of little girls who are, are, um, are clearly maybe not doing quite as well. Don't have as much support have already sort of had almost like that mark of like abuse on them. It, It is something that you carry, you know, 
it's not, it's not who you are. And, um, yeah, absolutely. It's, it doesn't define you or make you any less than, but there are certain signs and predators will see them, you know? And so that's how that abuse really can get compounded. And that's really just been the case throughout my life. That's awful. And you, and you're, you're, you're right. Like positions of power speaking. Yeah. You know, people that aren't necessarily as vocal or outspoken or not supported in proper ways or can see how a child doesn't stand up for themselves. Does it like, it's all those things. It's all of those things. How, how did you get from, um, recognizing the abuse with your therapist, you're reporting, what does that look like? Yeah. I mean, so I uncovered, like, I, I started talking about that more, um, when I was like 25 and I was in eating disorder recovery treatment, actually, I was in a treatment center inpatient, um, for, uh, anorexia and bulimia. And I had a wonderful experience at that particular center. I'd been in and out of treatment centers, you know, in my early twenties, like, you know, I, I went to a few and didn't have the best experiences and also wasn't really ready for, you know, a lot of what healing required. But when I was 25, I went to this place in San Francisco and I was there for a couple of months and it was, you know, all women, like very small and intimate, really cool faculty that was just, it was very holistic. It was um, a really cool place. And I felt safe there. And it was probably one of the first times in my life that like, I felt really safe and my body felt safe enough. I mean, you, you know how it is. It's like, you have to have this certain degree of safety. It was also like my body. I, I feel like the wisdom of my body was like, look, girl, like you're abusing yourself left and right, right now. We don't even have the wherewithal to look at this. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it wouldn't even, I wouldn't, it wasn't even something that was brought up to my consciousness until I was in that safe environment where, you know, I remember just in group therapy one day, um, having that bubble up and talking about it really for the first time and really acknowledging that, Oh my God, like this was real what happened because I wanted to stuff that away. I wanted to just push that so far away. And, and, um, so it was a couple of years from that point to when I, you know, reported with my therapist. And so it was, you know, just a process of coming in weekly. There was a period of time where I went, I think a couple times a week when I was really just going through it and having lots of somatic memories coming up, having lots of just you know, just, it was, it was like all the feelings, especially when I wasn't using those behaviors like drugs or alcohol, cutting bulimia, anorexia. I, um, I got sober when I was 23. So that was a huge thing for me as well, because I I had struggled with substance abuse. Um, it was heroin use that brought me in, uh, to rehab when I was 23. And that's really when kind of my, my healing journey kind of began when I was really like, okay, we're, we're going to live, you know, like that's what I'm choosing because I don't think before then I really, I really had chosen that. I I did have some suicide attempts, but even just in more of like a passive way, it was just this lack of commitment to life because it was like, why the fuck do I want to be here Mm -hmm. on this planet where like 
this kind of stuff is happening. I, I don't have a reason to believe that things are going to get better. And that did shift for me in rehab. Um, so it was a kind of a journey since then. Um, and just did a lot of, I think, process work and, and also gathered more support in 12 step communities, Yes, um, sponsors and friends and people who I felt, I felt I had a network of people who believed me, you know, which is why, like, even just reading the name of your podcast, I remember it just, it was like, oh my God, you know, mm-hmm. it makes me feel like I want to cry when I hear that. And when I just know about what you're doing in the world, because it's just all I wanted or needed. And still for parts of me, all that I really want or need is for someone to believe me, you know, and that is the most healing thing, you know? So that was really what I think got me to that um, point where I had that strength and to do that because I had that support. I had the support. I mean, yeah, you from fifth grade to 23, that part of life, I don't, I'm like, let's just skip over it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, and we can, if you want to, as, as I no, 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 I don't mind. You know, the, the manifestations of abuse and you've had, you had two abusers that one was the both, both men, of course, always. And then on top of it, a father yeah, um, and the yeah. cult, it's a lot going on. And how did you navigate though? How, how, how did it all manifest for you? Just so sadly, I wish I didn't have to say this. You're not the only person that yeah. this has happened to. And I'm sure that there's someone that will hear this and say, Oh my God. Yes. That's what I did. That's what, you know, like, what did it look like? Well, it's so important. I remember in my, in my sexual abuse recovery, like in the beginning, reading stories, like I read the book, The Courage to Heal. And there, what I loved about that book was that all the stories and all the markers, like the different things that people did. And I was like, oh my God, you know, this is not just because I'm, I didn't do that or I didn't do those things or it wasn't that way just because I'm crazy or there's something wrong with me. It was because I was abused. So I do think it's really important for people to hear about the connections and how that how that shows up in, in every area of life as you're developing past it. So, um, so that said, I did want to mention as well, like I did have a couple of men mess with me inside of the ashram and I don't want to go into too much detail around that, but just suffice it to say, there were a lot of men in my early life that, um, that abused me in, in similar ways. So, so yeah. So from, from 10 to 23, I mean, I, I lost that confident spirit that I kind of had that is really a strong and after that experience in fifth grade. And so I kind of, um, I would identify myself as like being really sensitive, um, was relatively well liked, but I did have had an issue with boys bullying me in middle school. Um, you know, kind of some sexual harassment stuff happened there actually a little bit. Had my first real boyfriend um, at 13. I dated him from 13 to 15. And, uh, you know, I lost my virginity to him technically. Um, like, 
first time I, I, I somewhat consented to sex, but I wouldn't even say that it was full consent. I didn't really want to do that with him or have those experiences at all. In fact, yeah, I just, I just, I just didn't want to do that. And I did because I didn't really know that I had a choice, you know, yeah. uh, and that was really of how relationships were for me. Right. And, and I, and I was someone as well who like, I was very bonded to my father in almost this like Stockholm type way. So I, it was like this, um, familiarity kind of, and also wanting a man in my life in this specific way, not just to validate me because I had such horrible self-esteem, but also to keep me safe, like on a subconscious level, feeling like if I have one, then like everybody else knows and he can defend me, you know? So I had a boyfriend from like 12 to like, (laughs) you know, um, 12 to like, you know, 28 or something like that. It was just nonstop. And I was like a serial, you know, boyfriend haver. Um, But, you know, I, I struggled a little bit in my relationships with women Um, I had some friends, but, uh, a lot of like, especially when I got to high school, most of that was based on kind of drug and alcohol use. And looking back, it was like a lot of like, honestly, kind of rich kids from Palo Alto that had super emotionally absent families, you know, (laughs) that just were not getting what we needed on an emotional level at all, you know? Um, and there was a lot of pressure, a lot of academic pressure, um, you know, pressure to get into good schools and perform well and all of that stuff. And so actually my high school had one of the highest suicide rates in the country. And it was like a really big, big deal. There were these train tracks by the high school and we had several suicides while I was attending there from, from kids stepping onto the train tracks. And so it's like, you know, we can talk about, um, like the, the, like there, I'm not negating the level of privilege in a community like that. There absolutely is privilege in a community like that. And there are also certain, um, experiences that are, I think just really, uh, common that are detrimental on an emotional level and on a psychological level, you know, like, you know, there's a lot of, um, appearances and a lot of pretending and a lot of pressure to be, you know, successful in these ways or to, for people to see you in these ways. And that was what my family was. And that was what they did at the cult and the, in the, you know, it was like, we're this happy family. Look at us. And we have two stars in the driveway. Yeah. And like, you know, dad is successful and like mom is beautiful and pretty. And like, she got a facelift, you know, and she's like, you know, and look at my, you know, my older brother was kind of the golden child. He performed really, really well academically you know, and then, um, you know, I was more of like the identified patient in my family. So for people who are familiar with like family systems, um, I don't know if you know anything about that, like golden child, the scapegoat, you know? Oh. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so I was like the identified patient. Um, my little brother kind of waffled between lost child and scapegoat. Um, cause those roles can kind of change. My older brother has always been the golden child though, but basically like what it is, is it's like, all of the suppression, right? All of the um, stuffing of all of the secrets and the emotions that weren't okay to have, the things that weren't okay to talk about or express, right. 
you know, I was real sensitive always. And, um, so I was almost like the geyser or like the volcano of the family where it's like, it would just come out through me, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and that was also a role I was expected to play in order to get connections specifically from my mother. It was like, if I was, I want, I wanted to get attention from her. And if I was going to get attention from her, that was really the only way to do it. And she really needed me to be the problem. Like I have, I have no problem saying that it's really true. Like she really needed me to be the Mm -hmm. problem. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I was, and so it was like at 13, they're like, go into the, you know, go see the psychiatrist and we're going to put you on medications because you're so, I mean, there's something wrong with your brain chemistry. Like we just don't understand why you're like this, Julia. This is like the gaslighting that so many survivors of this type of abuse experience. And this is really what I see as the, like at least in part of the root of so much behavior that I see in young women with uh, bulimia or cutting because it is an attempt to actually get that out. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's, it's really, it's the gaslighting, it's the secrets, it's the double reality where it's like they're in this other reality and, you know, you're supposed to play a role in that reality and no one is seeing your reality. You feel fucking crazy. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely insane. Uh, Yeah. And so they're like, what's wrong with you? And you're like, I don't know there's clearly something wrong with me. I'm crazy. Yeah. And you want to scream everything. Oh my God. Yes. Oh my God. And I would sometimes have these big explosions when I was a teenager, like with my mom, especially. And, you know, but she would yell too. And so it was like this, we would fight a lot. We fought a lot. Um, and so, yeah, I didn't, I didn't cope you know, I, I coped the best ways that I could and thank God that I coped in the ways that I did, but I did have, um, some, issues with cutting. I had a huge issue with eating disorders and I started, my anorexia started real bad at like 16 or 17. And my father got sick for a second time around then, um, with cancer this time, prostate cancer. And my mother was also having an affair. And so there was just a lot going on at home. And it was about the affair. Um, well, I could feel it and kind of see it. Cause she would go out. Um, she was going back to school at the time and she was like, you know, in college, um, you know, kind of with these younger people and she would kind of like go out to nightclubs and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. She would come home drunk. You know, I just could tell. And then later she admitted it to me after I was out of high school, you know, she really told me about it. And I was like, I know, mom, you know, um, but basically I, I felt, it was so scary to have that going on and my dad being sick and, um, you know, my, my long-term boyfriend at the time, uh, my, my second, like really serious boyfriend who was actually a real nice guy. He was actually a sweet person and helped me to feel safe. I think in a certain way, like we broke up. And so that was just this like shutdown that I went into and it was like, well, um, if I just ignore everything else and I just focus on, obviously this wasn't a conscious decision, but this was how it happened. If I just ignore everything else and if I can just focus on my calories and the weight and that goal, um, 
it'll be okay. And, and I even remember like, so the first time I ever threw up my food, I was only eight years old. And I remember like standing in front of the mirror and pulling up my dress to look at my tummy and just thinking, I have to get this out of me. You know, I don't know where I got that idea. I don't know if I like read anything about it or saw it on TV or anything. I don't consciously remember that. Um, and I didn't just continue from then on. I flirted with it, um, kind of throughout middle school. Uh, but the anorexia was a flavor of um, just really intense need to control and also like shut down. It was like, this is my body. You don't get to tell me what goes into my body. You don't get to tell me what goes out of my body. I am in control of that, you know? Mm-hmm. And again, thank God I had that because I don't know what would have happened to me if I didn't. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did go to college. I went to UC Santa Cruz, but it, it, the, the eating disorder got so bad when I was um, 20, 20, when I was 20, I think I um, went to treatment for the first time and I just kind of never went back to school, which sucked. And once, once I, once I went to treatment though, like for the first time, there were just certain things that woke up where it was like, okay, I'm aware now that I'm doing this behavior. I can't lie to myself about this behavior anymore, mm-hmm. but I still didn't have context as to really why right. it was there. So there wasn't the level of healing that really needed to be happening for me to change it. Um, so what, what happened was it sort of just shifted and it would mutate, right? It would be like, you know, the anorexia was like very controlled bulimia was like the other side of the pendulum felt like this big out of control. I would go on these monster binges where I would just consume everything. You know, I'd go from fast food restaurant to fast food restaurant. I would, you know, just take out the whole refrigerator at home. Um, sometimes, you know, like eight or 10 times at night, you know, binging and purging. Um, and that was just felt so out of control, you know, and, and, and then alcoholism and the drugs, you know, that kind of started as well. Like, so these were some of the darker years for me, like 20 to 22, just with bulimia and, um, alcoholism real bad. Uh, and I didn't, and I wasn't in school. So it was like, I, I felt like I lost everything that I was identifying with that made me like, I don't know, a, a worthy person, I guess. Yeah. Or excited about future or excited about yeah. life. Like that I yeah. could do anything or be anything other than right. like the fuck up, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I was date raped when I was 21 also. So it was a guy that took me out. Um, damn it. God I was, damn it. I know. I am, uh, fuck. It, like it I was, just... it was it, yeah, it was real bad. Shit. This makes me so mad. Like, I went from sadness yeah. to anger now, and I don't can't even imagine how many times you've done that in your life. I have gone to like, like, in a day. Exactly. It's all red. Yeah, I mean, it is, you know, and this is what, like, I have had to go back to so many of these aspects of self, you know, times when I, I also gave myself away and consented with 
words, but not my heart and body, like yeah. all through high school with people. And, and like the, the times when I've abused myself too, like I really can stand today in this place of compassion and forgiveness for myself mm-hmm. because I understand, I get why I did that. And I love myself for doing that. You know, yeah. I was really desperately trying to meet some needs for safety, you know, for control, for like stability, for self-expression. Um, so many really important things. And, oh, I just, I just, I'm just so grateful I survived it. Yeah, I am too. I am too. It's a lot. And you were, you were seeking and trying to find your needs met. Yeah. In the best way that you knew how. And I I can relate so much to a lot of it. Just, just even like not being able to place value on yourself and in your body and giving yourself away, not recognizing what you are and carry for years and years and years and self-abuse and self-abuse people are abusing you. So why would you not? How how would I have known? Yeah. You wouldn't know. Right. Just who taught me different? Nobody. Eight. Yeah. Eight. It's not possible. You are identified by what people do to you and tell you and your experiences. So like, that's right. Oh my God. So did you report that guy, that 21? I never did actually. I I didn't. I, I went on a pretty big downward spiral that actually led to my getting clean and sober because actually I, I remember the day after it happened because what happens in many trauma survivors, I'm sure will really relate to this. If you've had later experiences, it's like, what happens is again, like it's like that, those original experiences that all the trauma, all the pain, all the unprocessed shit, it just gets compounded. And so when you experience something like that at 21, it's not even, I shouldn't even say just because like in and of itself, but it, it's not solely that experience that comes up in your body. It's like this whole wave of, I mean, it was like, the flashbacks that were surfacing, just the, the level of shit that was surfacing, I could not cope. And my brother was using heroin at the time, my little brother. So he was more in his kind of, you know, um, his own coping, right? Uh, we all coped differently. And, and I, I love my brothers. And I know that they, we were all, you know, victims in a sense. And um, unfortunately, in a family system like that, you don't get to really often be super close to your siblings because you're kind of pitted against one another. or You're kind of separated. It's just this mentality of like every person for themselves. But I just wanted to throw that in there. Just, just to say it, you know, just to say like, yeah, I love my brothers. We all did that. We coped differently. We all did the best that we could to survive that situation. But my little brother at the time um, was using drug. I think he was only like 18 or something like that, but he was using heroin and I knew that he was. And I remember sitting there and just deciding that I was going to use his drugs. And I went into his room and I took it because I felt like the alternative for me was unbearable. 
it, it was just, I, I could not think about existing in that state, you know, for the rest of my life. And, and so when I used it and, and opiates, you know, people who've had intense childhood trauma and they're in a lot of pain because of that opiates really appeal because they're a numbing agent, you know? So it, it immediately, and it worked, man, it coated me with this numbness and this kind of like, everything's okay. And I don't even care anymore. I don't care about that. I'm okay. Everything's fine. And I just, I literally remember the voice in my head saying to me, I'm just going to do this until I die. You know, it was just, that was just what I was going to do, you know? Right. But I, but I didn't get that far, you know, as what part of the, so like I have type one diabetes. I I should, I should have mentioned that, but So, yeah, so I was anorexic and 19 in college when I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, which is dependent and it's a whole big thing. Um, But because of that, my body didn't do so well with all of the drugs, you know, and and with not um, taking care of myself. So in a sense, I, I really see it today and I would never try to force anyone else to see it this way for themselves, but I'm just speaking into like the truth of how I see it now for myself is that I do feel like it, it was a blessing that it took me down as quickly as it did because of that, because there are a lot of people who could stay in that place of using and drinking for year for decades, yep. being that, you know, and I would, I was real clear. I was going to die. You know, I was like, I, I went to the ER like multiple times, you know, I was in and out of the ER. And so I knew that I was like at this crossroads, um, And I was just fucking tired. I was tired of waking up in the morning and trying to make it through my day and trying to get what I needed to not be sick. I I was tired of lying. I I just was done and I didn't know what else to do. And my parents offered uh, for me to go to rehab, you know, so I did. And I, it, it was probably the most pivotal. It was the biggest turning point in my life. Because again, like I, I decided because I heard from other stories. This is why, again, like I'm, I'm coming back to just the podcast and like your purpose work and why that is so fucking important and why I'm here to tell my story is that people shared their stories. You know, I went to meetings where people shared their stories. People in rehab shared their stories. My counselors shared their stories. And, and some of them were real similar to mine, stuff that they did, stuff that they felt, stuff that they went through. And they told me, God, this is going to make me cry. Like, I feel differently now, you know, like I don't have to do that to myself anymore. Yeah. There, it is possible. Right. To actually create a different life for yourself. And so I didn't know if that was really true. Like you don't know. Right. You don't. But if I thought if there's a chance, like I know where this road goes, right? If I like keep going down the road I was going, I know where that goes. But if there's a chance that I could have something different, I'm just going to try, mm-hmm. you know? And I did. And I worked my ass off, man, when I got out of that rehab. Like I was really committed to my work. I I, I started... Um, <laughs> 
teaching preschool actually, because I, I had gone to school and, and done a lot of credits for early childhood um, development and kids were a bright spot for me. They were pure, they were um, authentic, you know, which is for me, authenticity. And for a lot of people who've been in like abuse situations, like I was in, you know, growing up in a cult or like having incest that's not talked about, you want transparency. That is just a need that's born of that, that gets real strong. So like the kids were so safe for me. Um, and so I did that. And, but I was, you know, I was working pretty long hours. You don't get paid a lot as a preschool teacher. Right. I didn't bar, right. So I was taking the bus, but I still managed to make it to a lot of meetings and um, to therapy every week and just really, you know, called, I had a sponsor that I called every day at like 6.30 a.m. I just really committed to this path. Um, And I haven't really deviated from that commitment, although it's looked differently at different times. Right. You know? Yeah. Is your life, how, I don't even know, how's your, are your parents still with us? Are they still alive? They're still alive. Yeah. They live in Scotts Valley, California, which is close to Santa Cruz. Amazing that they were able to get you into rehab. Like, yeah. Huge. Yeah huge privilege. Thing. Oh, and that's where I can really see my privilege too, yeah. with yes. that option that was available for me. I mean, it was covered by my insurance. Like I was at the time, I think 20, you know, in, I was in my early twenties. So yeah, 23. So I, I was under yeah. my mom's insurance, you know, from her employer, like that's huge that I was able to have that resource and the resources that I did have after yeah. that, too. the outpatient treatments that were available to me, things like that huge and it, it's it's extremely yeah it is privileged but it makes a difference between life and death and recovery and not recovered you know, totally but did, did your mom know about the incest yes um so i i last spoke to my family about four and a half years ago at this point okay. um and it's because I shared with her. So my parents are still together. I made the decision to stop talking to my father. And that was when I was like 29. Um, I'm 34 now. So, um, and then I, 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 you know, I spoke with my mom about everything that happened. I basically sat down with her and I told her, I told her how I felt about, you know, the experience of being in a cult when I was a kid, I told her about what happened in fifth grade with my teacher. I told her about my father. I mean, it was a lot, it was a big conversation, you know, but, and, and, you know, people have their different um, paths with that. And I'm, I'm sure you, I think, you know, I've heard you say similarly that like, or just feel I'm picking up that you have an awareness of the fact that this journey is so different for everybody and telling their story and who they tell it to and when. And so telling your family is something that um, I think is really personal and really different for everyone. But for me, like I started, I started getting more clear memories back around that time. And it was just, I couldn't, I could not be in contact with him anymore. And I couldn't keep the secret anymore. I, I, I hit a breaking point and this part of me came up that I, I really love this part of me, actually. It's like this part of me that is like a whistleblower and it's just like, fuck 
this shit. I am not staying silent anymore. I am not swallowing those secrets. I don't care who it makes uncomfortable. Like, because, you know, you love your mom, you love your family. You don't, I didn't want to hurt my brothers. Like, I didn't want to rip the family apart or be seen I mean, as the you, you had everything at risk. You were, you were, I mean, everything was on you. You, it's risky to do it. And yeah. then you have to deal with everyone's feelings yeah. about your truth, which is such bullshit because yes. you shouldn't have to deal with anyone's fucking feelings. Exactly. Trying to figure out your own, but it's still exactly. like, and then it becomes, you do it, you're lighting it on fire. The tree's burning. Exactly. And, and that's the thing is that I, I always tell people that I, you know, that are um, vulnerable enough to, to trust me with, you know, their um, experiences. Like, you know, when you do confront, um, if you choose to, and I don't know whether or not I'll confront my father. I may someday, I don't know. Right now is not the day. I just, I'm just a no on that. Like, it's just not, I just, I don't want to talk to him about it. I don't really want anything to do with him. But with my mother, it was, it was something I really, I really felt called to do, but I tell people, you know, like to prepare for whatever response they might have, because it's, it's wonder, you can't be really going into a conversation like that for any other reason, other than you need to speak it, you know, because their reaction, you just don't know. And my mom was all over the place in that conversation, you know, because when it came to like my teacher, I mean, she cried, she was like, Oh my God, I had no idea. Like, I love you so much. And, you know, wanted to protect me and take care of me when it came to the pulse, she was very defensive. You know, when it came to my father, weirdly, she kind of, she said some things where she was like, are you sure it wasn't someone else? Like, well, you might be confused. But then she was like, well, maybe when you were real small, like he might've done something. Um, it was just like this weird, she, she, she was trying to process it in her best way. Yeah. Yeah. And she didn't say absolutely no, that didn't happen, but she also didn't say absolutely. Yes. yes, It happened. It it wasn't either one. (sighs) Yeah. And I just was like, I just don't, I mean, I mean, I'm pretty clear that she settled on, she doesn't think that it really happened because she she went home and he denied it, you know, and we were going to circle back around and talk after that. And I, I was waiting for her to reach out to me for a while. And then I just decided I'm just not going to, I'm just not going to reach out because I, so like at that time in my life, again, I'm coming back to like this support element at that time in my life, I was beginning to meet people because I was standing in this space of my truth and owning that unapologetically. And I was standing in this place of like authenticity as my highest value. I was meeting people who had those values and who were like, we believe you, Julia. Like we want to hear your truth. We want to be in that reality with you. So because of that, it was like, that feels too good for me to ever want to go back to a reality in which my truth isn't seen. So I would still sit down with my mother today. I'd go to therapy with her, you know, potentially even my father one day, if there wasn't 
an acknowledgement of the truth of what happened. That is my number one boundary. And since that condition isn't met, that is why I don't have contact. And that's not right for everyone, but it is right for me. It's awesome that you're capable and you're aware and you have the know-how and the courage to set proper boundaries for yourself Mm. when they were violated for so long, that you're, you're able to stand on your own two feet and set the boundaries you need to protect yourself and keep yourself safe. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Whatever that means for whoever situation that everyone, like it's on your own terms and it's absolutely a hundred percent amazing and beautiful that you've been able to get there. Because it wasn't taught to you, it was taken away, and you don't know what the boundaries are. How do you create them for yourself? How do you say enough? And you found it, which is awesome. It's on your own terms, your life. It's incredible, Julia, that you have been able to get to be where you're at. Now you're helping other people. Yeah, I am. Thank you so much for that affirmation. And and it is, it's such a big deal. It it took a lot of work, honestly, to to get there. It's amazing to, to hear. And it gives me hope for others. I mean, it, it overwhelms me that it, that you've been able to do it. You know, honestly, like it was repetitive abuses and repetitive violations of your safety and it was drug use and it, all of it, eating disorders, like you got, you got end of the stick of all the things you got all the things. It wasn't just one. And so many people I know personally, just through my own work and through my own life, don't get to find a, a space to, to speak their truth and to feel believed yeah. and to set boundaries with people that don't gel with them and to say, I don't, to be able to mentally just say, you, you violate my, what my, what my hierarchy of needs are and what my values are. And I don't have to be around you because yeah. of that. Like choose yeah. power. That is power. It is. That's where I found that power. I love, love that reflection. Thank you so much. And I love that we're talking about this because that really is like, and, and healing from things like bulimia, especially like there is this need to find that voice and that power and that truth, you know, bulimia for me was a messenger. All of those things were messengers. But for me, that was the primary message of bulimia was like, to be in that place of truth, because when I am, I don't actually need that behavior. It's like, so, you know, I think like, I think this is true for a lot of people that they come to that healing through healing first with, from the coping mechanisms that you develop just to survive your life, you know, or get through your life. And it can take some time, you know, to peel some of those layers away. And I, and I, I, like, again, I just feel like kind of harping on this right now, like this support piece, because Mm. I coach people around relationship now. And the reason that I do that, and I attract because I'm vocal about my story, and because of just like, who I am in the space that I stand in, I attract a lot of survivors, you know, Um, and I have a really loving partnership today. And have been with this man for about four years. And 
I also live in an intentional community. So there are six of us who live together in a home and most of us have very little contact with our families of origin. Some of us have none. Um, many of us were abused in our childhood homes and our core desire was to create almost like a functional family system, you know, to create that experience of belonging and connection and support mutually. And I've been able to do that. Like, and that is the reason why I can do my purpose work in the way that I am. It's the reason why I can continue to stand in that truth because for a lot of people, it's like family, we have this narrative in our, um, you know, in our culture, in the world, really, and, and most cultures that I know of, it's like family is everything, you know, blood is thicker than water, da, 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 da. And so there's this idea that like, you're supposed to always be there. And those are your people and nobody out, you can't have those kinds of bonds with anyone else. That is not fucking true. Like you can create the family that you choose. It is up to you. If you had a shitty one, like that sucks. And you don't have to stay in that. You know, it's, it's, I I think our society is just shifting to, Mm -hmm. to understand, like when you, when you were talking about, um, you know, wanting to just be in truth, be in the truth in yourself and be around people that just believe you. Like I've thought about this so much of, I mean, we don't, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole with this because it could go take us for another hours and hours and hours, but just the revolution in general and how baby boomers are having such a hard time with the acceptance Mm -hmm. of the truth of our history. They've been told a narrative that is false. So their entire identity is now reality collapse. And part of that reality class, which I think a lot of the baby boomers are feeling is that we don't have to fucking accept you creepy uncle anymore. We don't have to say you're my family. So I have to be there for you for the rest of my life because you're my mom or my dad or my sister or my brother or my aunt or my cousin. You don't have to. And like, how free that is to just say, I don't, because we're blood related, I don't owe you anything unless I'm unconditionally loved by you. And I give you the same back, which means expressing when you're upset, when somebody says something or does something, being able to say I'm upset with you without having to carry the weight of what that looks like, like not having to carry their reactions to saying something just, something so small like you hurt my feelings like yeah Yeah. like it's it that that is such a huge thing that I think is just now starting to fester even within the last five years with the me too movement with the revolution we're in now like all of it people are starting to just say oh I have to just accept this and we don't have to be quiet about it anymore you know we just don't need to do that Nope. Um, and, and we're seeing that there are others out there for everyone who won't support us or will call us out in nasty ways or whatever. Like there's also other, others who are going to fully embrace us and support us Yeah, that truth that we're in and in those boundaries that we have and that we're allegiant to, you yeah. know, what I've really found. And, and sometimes it takes a leap of faith. To know that like those people are there or that like you're going to be okay on the other side. Um, You know, so it's brave. It's brave stepping into that. And it is, it's a whole 
unknown. It's a whole new world. And, and for a lot of us, that, that is the case. People who are struggling the most, and I think people who probably will be struggling the most in the coming years are people who are holding on real tight to the old paradigms. And a lot of it is the old paradigms around relationship. Because yep. if you think about it, I mean, I look at everything kind of through that lens because humans are such an intensely relational species, you know, yeah. this is like the core of everything. Everything is a problem with people and people, you know, if we're looking at any issues, like it, it's, it's really about how we are relating to one another, what we choose to see and not see what we choose to project versus what we choose to own. Right. Mm-hmm. How yes up in relationship with ourselves, how, how do, how we choose to show up in relationship with one another. Um, and so like the kinds of revo- uh, the, of, it's like revolutionary, revolutionary relationships. Um, I should start a podcast and name it that. Um, That's good idea. Right. I, I, the kinds of just, uh, relationships that you're describing, like the kind of relationships where people get to have boundaries, where people get to have emotions and express them, you know, where nobody has to swallow the blame because it's not anybody's, it's not, you know, people aren't bad and and nobody has to have all the power in a dominating kind of a way. Like it's because we all get to be us and there's space for that. Like this is an idea that maybe for you and me and maybe some of your listeners, it's like, well, duh, like that's just how it should be. But for a lot of people, they're like, what are you even talking about? (laughs) <laughs> that is not how it works, you know, because relationships are, we, we operate on under these unconscious codes, these like things that we um, are, these expectations, these contracts, you know. Well, and you said it earlier, I think in our conversation prior to recording, but attachments. Oh yeah. It's huge. It's oh my God. It's like, I, I need you to meet this need for me and I'm so scared of losing you. So I'm going to do X for you. If you stay like, I need you, like it, it's just a whole, yeah. the whole thing. So it's, so looking at the childhood, I mean, obviously I was able to see like how my childhood just set me up and, and like, this is what the message I want to give to, to, to people who struggle in relationship and especially women who find themselves in abusive relationships or who find themselves in a position where maybe they don't feel okay to be on their own. And they're getting a lot of flack from it, from people who really don't get it and are telling them, why can't you just love yourself? Yeah. You know, or be on your own. You know, why are you with this? It's like, it is not that easy because you do, you have to look at the whole picture of someone's life, you know? So again, like, like you were saying, how do you know that there's even anything different? You know, how do you know that that's not love? Yeah. You don't, you don't, you know, so it's not that there's a problem with you, but there is an opportunity there. If you're in a place where you're really ready to go back to that original wounding, like I do a lot of inner child work, you know, for myself and with the people that I work with and, um, it, it, it works real well for me because of my background and because of the fact I taught preschool for like eight years. And, you know, it's like really, um, really just makes sense to me, but that work I've found to be really deeply transformative in terms of the ways in which it's accessible for me to show up in adult relationship, you know, mm-hmm. and to find those people that, um, 
are going to actually give me those needs that I wasn't able to get from yes. the people in my childhood. Yes. Wow, Julia. Just, oh my God. So amazing. Julia is such a badass. I really enjoyed getting to know her and I felt honored to sit with her as, as she told me her story. And Julia picked just an amazing nonprofit, one I had never heard of. It's, they're called Encourage. And what they are put on this world in this world to do is to promote the physical and mental well-being of people who have suffered as a result of contact with cults, abusive groups, or relationships, or an abusive family environment. They help with financial assistance, support, befriending, educating. And they also underca- undertake research and advance the education to the general public in all areas relating to contact with cults. I, it's just amazing, especially for someone like Julia that has been born into something so big and to not know what to do. This was really hopeful to find. I can't help but wonder about QAnon. Maybe uh, Encourage can help them. <laughs> uh, kind of not a joke, really. Like maybe we could help the cults that are forming on the right to stop. Uh, right? And um, my, my nonprofit pick this time is the Portland Respirator Fund. My friend has started this and uh, is buying respirators for p- anyone in Portland um, that has respiratory issues, during poor air quality like we have with the fires, you know, whether it is wildfire smoke or tear gas indiscriminately released in a residential neighborhood, because that is happening every single night to the protesters, like every single night. So um, it's a beautiful way to help with the fight. It's a beautiful way I have given often. And you can give at the Cash App. If you have Cash App, it is dollar sign gas me Teddy, T-E-D-D-Y. And I'll put this up everywhere on social medias. Again, um, Gas Me Teddy uh, with the Cash App. Or if you don't have that, you can Venmo to me, someone's madre, and I will make sure that they get the money. It's a wonderful way to give and to actually do something right now in the fight that we are in. I appreciate you listening to Julia, and I appreciate you always coming on and listening to every uh, you know podcast I put out. And um, as always, please lead your life with compassion, lead with love, and hopefully, hopefully, you've already been uh, registered to vote, I'm assuming that, and I hope you vote with your heart, and I hope you vote with compassion. Thanks for listening, I love you.